This is Ken Benson, SIFMA's president and CEO. Welcome to the SIFMA podcast. Recently, SIFMA held our 49th annual operations conference and exhibition. At this event, we gather operations, technology, and regulatory leaders from across the securities industry. These are the professionals whose incredible hard work and tenacity kept markets open and functioning during deeply uncertain times. They have led our industry through an unprecedented period, both with responsiveness and responsibility to ensuring that our markets continue to operate efficiently and effectively, no matter what the impediment. There was much to discuss at this year's event, and the room was buzzing. As SIFMA and our members continue to respond to COVID challenges, our industry must also address an evolving regulatory agenda. Some such issues were ongoing before COVID, such as completion of the consolidated audit trail, and some are new. SIFMA has been actively responding to the avalanche rule proposals coming out of the SEC this year. In the first quarter alone, there were 16 rule proposals. Only once in the 21st century has the commission produced more first quarter rules, 17 in 2011, driven by the Dodd-Frank Act following the global financial crisis. It is important for policymakers to consider the interrelated nature of many of these proposals that could have unintended consequences for market operations. And further, they need to consider the ability of the industry to absorb and implement multiple complex rulemakings concurrently. Equally, policymakers themselves must do the work, including robust cost-benefit analysis, not just from individual viewpoint, but holistically to ensure the rules address a true market failure and will accomplish the intended policy goal. Doing too much too fast without sufficient analysis may not produce the best outcome. That is not to say we oppose everything the commission seeks to address. And in fact, the industry is supportive of several initiatives, such as accelerating the security settlement cycle. This is a substantial undertaking that will impact many product and process issues across the market and should be viewed as a baseline initiative before embarking on other ancillary policy projects. Likewise, the industry has continued with its responsibility to report trade data and soon related PII as the CAT is finalized in July. The SEC has had pending since August 2020, a major rule proposal involving the protection of data collected by the CAT, including investor PII. It should be a priority of the agency to finalize that rule before the CAT is fully live in just a few short weeks. Looking ahead, we expect further regulatory activity across many market and product sectors, such as digital assets, including digital securities and crypto and money market funds, which will lead to new rules and requirements for broker dealers, banks and asset managers. Whether or what proposals may be made in all these areas will be of significant interest to SIFMA's members and their clients. As we look forward, I believe we will see a very robust regulatory agenda over the next uh, few years, impacting many products, market sectors and operations. While policymakers develop rules, Ultimately, is the industry, and in many cases, the operations and technology professionals, along with legal and compliance, who must implement them. During our conference, I had the privilege of sitting down with Thomas Pluta to discuss these issues and more. Tom is global head of linear rates trading for JP Morgan and the chair of SIFMA's 2022 board of directors. In this conversation, Tom gives us his perspective on recent volatility in treasury, equity, and fixed income markets. We talked about ways we can increase resiliency in the treasury markets, the regulatory agenda coming out of the SEC, an overview of the work to shorten a settlement cycle, the status of the transition from LIBOR 
and Tom has a countdown clock on his phone, and lessons the industry has learned since the pandemic and returned to office. It's a pleasure to share that discussion with you. Great. Thank you, Tom, for joining us today. So um, it's a lot going on, and so I thought we'd, we'd sort of get right in it. Um, in particular, uh, uh, you know, we have a number of topics we want to get to, but I, but I thought what would be good to start is talking about the markets. Um, we have a lot going on in monetary policy, geopolitical issues, economic issues. Um, it'd be great to get your, per, per, your perspective as a market participant thinking about the volatility in the treasury markets, fixed income markets, and equity markets. How do you see things from your vantage point? Sure, thanks, Ken, and uh, very happy to be here with everyone. Um, to think about or to understand where we are right now, you have to rewind two years. What was happening in spring of 2020? And um, we were subject to um, an unprecedented economic shock and market shock, and the Fed and the other central banks around the world and Congress had to deliver unprecedented, massive monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus. Um, they did a great job. Um, it helped spur recovery. And um, the issue, though, I think, is that they kept the stimulus in far too long. As growth recovered, as markets recovered, we saw inflation pressures, not just in consumer prices, but also in assets of all kind, equity markets, housing markets, um, you know, new asset classes that didn't exist before, like NFTs, meme stocks. So I think the stimulus went on way too long, and in 2021, that was the time that they really should have pulled back. I think they were about a year too late in stopping QE, reversing to QT, and, and hiking rates. So now um, they recognized a bit late um, that they were late, and they're normalizing policy very quickly. So we've had, I mean, the size of the moves of the last eight months has been pretty staggering. 150 basis points higher yield in the long end, shorter end 250 basis points um, as the market's priced in what's been signaled. Um, so, you know, as far as where we are now and where we go, I think we're fairly priced, right? We're priced to get to Fed funds three, three and a quarter over the next, you know, year to year and a half. I think that's reasonable given what we know. Um, Equity markets, um, and, and I think the, the treasury markets, I think, are in sort of the ninth inning of the sell-off. I think these are pretty fair value, around 3% in tens. Equity markets, I was surprised how long they hung in, and they only really started selling off a month or two ago, which, again, I think is appropriate, given everything going on. I think we may have a bit more to go there, maybe another 5 to 10% lower in equities. But, you know, most of the move has happened, and now it's about what happens with the economic data going forward. How fast does inflation come down towards target? So, you know, maybe stepping in a little bit into uh, into treasury markets. Um, as you noted, there's been volatility. There's been a lot of movement in the treasury markets as rates are trending upwards. At the same time, markets seem to be functioning well. There haven't been any uh, ruptions or, or many flash crashes. Um, but the Treasury Department and other policymakers, SEC and others, have suggested that there should be structural changes in the in the treasury market. Uh, things and, and in fact, the Treasury just recently said they're going to put out a request for information, looking at things like uh, uh, public transparency for post-trade data, uh, um, possibly mandating central clearing um, for Treasuries and repos, re you know, requiring PTFs and to register as broker-dealers and 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 the like. Are these proposals you think on the mark? Or are there other things that the Treasury should be looking at? And maybe going back to where's where's this all coming? Yeah. From? So um, this is a very hot topic. Um, and the backdrop is that 
while we haven't had any flash crashes of late, um, you know, we've, there has been a number of market shocks over the years, and the treasury market is way less liquid than, it, than it's been in the past. Now, now how did we get there? Um, statistically, this, this, I always mention this because it's pretty staggering. The size of the treasury market over the last 15 years has grown from four and a half trillion to 22 trillion. So it's five times the size it was 15 years ago. But the size of dealer balance sheets, bank balance sheets committed to treasuries is roughly constant. Um, now why is that? The reason for that is that coming out of the GFC, the combination of capital, liquidity, um, leverage uh, regulations has made it very expensive to be in these markets um, with, with, with all the additional charges. And what you've seen is a number of banks have, have dropped out or shrunk their footprint. Um, and there's been a concentration in, in the, top, the top five banks, which it's good for JP Morgan, but you know, it's really not desirable for the market overall. So I think you know, as you're looking at the combination of things that are being proposed for treasuries, um, I think the overarching goal should be finding ways to increase that pri the principal liquidity provision by banks that has been stagnant for 15 years as the market has grown. Now, part of the problem here is a lot of these regulations are either size-based, like GSIB, right? You get penalties the larger you are. Um, as the markets get larger, it's kind of hard to not get larger. Um, and then things like the SLR, the supplemental leverage ratio, that's become very binding for, for banks. And the problem with that, um, that one is it's, it's risk agnostic. So you're getting penalized in capital charges for risk-free assets like, um, like bank reserves or very low-risk assets like treasuries. So you know, I think number one is you need to address those regulations, which has also been discussed. Um, but as far as the ones that you mentioned, I think they're also important. They can have some benefits. Um, increased central clearing of treasuries. Um, there's definitely benefits, reducing settlement risk. There's some costs as well that I think need to be um, considered for certain types of counterparties. Um, and it doesn't have to be binary. I mean, there's only about 20% of the treasury market is centrally cleared today. Um, but I think if you scoped in, if you had a, a dealer mandate where you scoped in the principal trading firms, you're going to get that number much closer to 50%. So there's a very healthy debate on that. I think we'll see some proposals. And I, I think there will be some uh, definitely increased uh, central clearing coming. Um, you mentioned trade reporting. Uh, that, um, I think that's important um, to consider very carefully what type of public trade reporting is done. For the liquid segments of the market, on-the-run treasuries, not a big deal to have relatively real-time reporting. When you, when you get into the illiquid sectors, deep off the runs, strips, tips, you got to be careful not to release that in real time because it's going to compromise the liquidity um, uh, of the dealers and, and, and users ultimately trying to to get in and out of position. So that, that all needs to be um, uh, looked at very carefully. You know, it, 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 on two things you mentioned, it's interesting, on the, on the SLR, of course, uh, during the, you know, back in 2020, right, the, the, uh, 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 the government suspended that, right, when they recognized that there was a balance sheet constraint and, and uh, um, subsequently came back on, but it kind of acknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. They recognized there was a problem. Um, they suspended. They, they changed the calculation to, to not include uh, right. treasuries and reserves, but it expired after 12 months. We do expect there will be some sort of replacement. I think they get it. We're waiting for a Fed chair of supervision to be confirmed, and then hopefully it'll be addressed. Yeah, and then, and then on, on the post-trade transparency, uh, you know, it's, uh, our, 
I think we've talked about this, our, our colleagues at, at AFME, our, our European, uh, European and UK uh, affiliate, um, recently did a, uh, had a paper uh, commission looking more at the corporate fixed income market under the European rules for uh, post-trade transparency that's being reviewed right now. And they were, they were looking at how long it takes a dealer to, uh, to, work, to work out an order. Um, depending on the, on the size and liquidity of the orders and, and the inverse relationship there. And, and so it kind of, I think it gets to your point of, of thinking about the less liquid. Yeah, that, that was great analysis. It was done for the credit markets. Right. Um, and I think if we could apply the same analysis to treasuries, we'd get to a good place about having the appropriate uh, delay in, in releasing uh, yeah. trade information. Well, it's obviously a very going to be very robust uh, uh, already a robust regulatory year, and then and then uh, and, and and then uh, again all the discussion around the treasury market. Um, yeah, and CIF, I mean, CIFMA is doing a lot of great work on this. I'm personally very involved, so I, you know, I think uh, the, the discussions have been very productive. But um, let's move beyond treasuries, and yeah. maybe if I could ask you, Ken, um, you know, what are the other what other CIFMA work would you highlight? In the regulatory arena, sure. I mean, as as, as uh, uh, and a lot will be talked about here. But as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I mean, you know, you know, number one, we have we have perhaps we we do have the most robust regulatory agenda coming out of the SEC since the Great Financial Crisis. And uh, you know, I think uh, uh, the SEC has noted that they're going to pursue 54 different rulemakings over the course of the year. Um, there are now about you know there are about 17 or so proposals have been put out, uh, maybe 20 now. Um, we're we're involved in almost all of those at this point, and thinking of those that are still on the Reg Flex agenda, many of those are things that will impact our members that we'll be involved in. They cut across uh, kind of all product sectors, uh, uh, everything from you know ATS dealers, private to private funds, money markets, uh, um, uh, cyber. Um, uh, 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 we expect uh, climate disclosure, obviously, a lot going on. We expect, uh, if we'll take the uh, Chair Gensler at his word, uh, we expect to see uh, further rule proposals around, um, around uh, fixed income markets in addition to the Treasury market and, and taking a look at, at Reg NMS. So uh, quite substantial, um, and, and, and frankly, as, as I said, there are things that the members agree with we may quibble over some of the details of what's the best way to accomplish the goal. Um, there are certain things to be sure that we don't, but I, there is a, a real concern uh, that the commission is moving too fast and uh, and not uh, not just providing ample time to the industry and other stakeholders to comment, uh, which has a knock-on effect on the SEC staff's ability to craft a good rule. But also, and they're not necessarily doing all the work they need to do in terms of cost-benefit analysis to achieve the policy goal, or as I pointed out, actually proving where there is, is a market failure. And I think this has been proven out uh, when you look at uh, some of the commentary of, or, or actions uh, in, in some of the rule proposals. They openly acknowledge they don't have time to get all the information they need stakeholders to provide it. And, and, and then second, we've seen the SEC reopen rulemakings, which is a good thing they've done that. But it, it underscores, I think, that, that they really need to prioritize and really think about how all these rules are connected. And then, as, you know, as we we'll talk a lot about at this conference and we talked about last fall, you know, you've got settlement cycle, which we're supportive of, and that I truly believe that's going to happen. That's going to affect everything, 
And so really a lot of these rules, whether it's securities lending or reg show or whatever it is, really stack on top. And so the commission needs to, needs to think about that. And then in addition, uh, you know, I, there's no question there's gonna be some activity on digital and crypto uh, coming. There's already certain things moving. There's a staff accounting bulletin that's quite problematic. Uh, there's discussion of legislation in Congress. That can take time. Um, the bank regulators are, are, are looking at more at the Basel level coming down, but we should see that filtering down. And the SEC and the CFTC are trying to figure out where their jurisdiction is uh, and, whether, and what they may have to do in, 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 a joint, uh, in a joint effort. And then you mentioned, uh, talking about the uh, capital rules, uh, there is a pending nomination of a vice chair for supervision of the Fed, Michael Barr, former Obama Treasury official. Um, assuming he gets confirmed, we would, we would expect to see the prudential regulators come out with sort of what's known as the Basel endgame. And so this would be the final of the post-financial crisis capital and liquidity rulemakings uh, around uh, things like the fundamental review of the trading book and the like, which would be a quite substantial uh, rulemaking. So there's, there's a lot. There's a yeah, there's certainly a lot going on, keeping, uh, keeping all of us busy. Um, and SIPA staff has done a tremendous job. Um, let, let's go back to, or digging a little further, to the, to the shortened settlement cycle. It's obviously a huge one, a huge change for the market. Everyone here is probably involved. Um, to T plus one, you know, how do you see that fitting in and what are your expectations for implementation? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, so SIFMA and, and, and our predecessor SIA have long been involved in these efforts going back, you know, we, back in, uh, was it 2017 or whatever, we, along with the Investment Company Institute and DTCC, led the effort to go from T3 to T2 back in, in uh, 1993, uh, we're involved in, the, in, in, you know, the T5 to T3. Um, so we have a long history in this area, which is good because the industries, again, people in this room and elsewhere, the ones who are actually going to have to do all the work. And, you know, we started looking at this, I mean, I give DTCC credit because they really started looking at it in the, I'd say, the late summer of, of, of 20. Uh, uh, we got involved uh, as they reached out to the industry in the fall of 20. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, this all came out of the meme stock uh, incident, but actually the industry was already doing a lot of work before anybody even knew what a meme stock was. And so, you know, we spent a lot of 21 working across the industry, a lot of people in this room, really digging into the different issues. And there are really sort of 12 big categories or more that, that it cuts across. Um, I should note our colleagues at Deloitte have been working with us very closely on this as well. Um, it's a big undertaking, and uh, you know the SEC is is much more forward leaning on this than they were when we did three to two. That's a good thing. Um, we're going to have to work with them. They have a pending rulemaking. Uh, we've commented on. We think there's some changes they need to make in it. I think on the timelines, they're probably a little too aggressive uh, in, in when they want to get it done. Um, uh, we're not off by that much. Uh, in, in, in terms of that, we think it should be synced up with the Canadians because of, of, of different schedules that occur around there. But at the end of the day, it's going to get done, but, but it's going to get done when it can get done. So I think we have to be careful not to set artificial deadlines of, of trying to push it too quickly. Um, and so that's how, that's how we are in commenting with the SEC. But, but there's a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm confident we can get it done. Um, maybe uh, uh, switching to uh, a project that's getting towards the end and a big transition is LIBOR. You know, you've been deeply involved in this. 
the end of U.S. dollar LIBOR is just 13 months from now. If, if John Williams was here for the New York Fed, he'd tell us exactly how many days that was, down to hours and minutes probably. Um, you've been involved in this. How do you see the transition going? What else do you think needs to be done? And, and also sort of how you see things not just in the U.S. but around the globe as well. I, I have a countdown date clock on my phone too. It's 400-something. But uh, yeah, so um, I'll start with outside the U.S. Um, December 31st was a, a big day for the LIBOR transition because the four non-U.S. dollar LIBORs ceased uh, publication. Uh, sterling, yen, Swiss, and euro LIBOR are no more. Um, in the case of sterling and yen, there's a, there's a, a um, synthetic LIBOR that's calculated and produced for a period of one year for certain types of um, tough legacy uh, contracts that don't have appropriate fallbacks. Uh, give more time to work out of those uh, trades. But that's done. That's been really good. With respect to the U.S., uh, we do have 13 months to go. But December 31st was also an important date because the, um, the guidance from the regulators, um, or mandate if you're a bank, was to trade no new U.S. dollar LIBOR products. The only U.S. dollar LIBOR trading or, uh, that's done is for risk reduction purposes. So if you're doing derivatives, it's because you're taking it off or you're converting it to SOFR or you're unwinding something. Um, so the, the volumes are actually quite low. The transition um, has actually gone extremely well, particularly given where we were last July. Last July, there was very little uptake in SOFR derivatives. The cash markets hadn't really gone yet. There was a lot of confusion waiting for the term rate. But then there were a series of steps. The term rate was published and approved by the ARC. Um, there were three um, what we called SOFR first efforts, which were done where essentially the, the, the banks and the interdealer markets um, agreed, uh, CFTC oversaw this, but agreed to um, only quote to each other in SOFR, not LIBOR, and then clients followed after that. So the liquidity move, they did it in interest rate swaps, then cross-currency swaps, then um, swaptions, caps, and floors. So that really moved the liquidity quickly. And then turn the calendar into 2022. Um, for new business, it's, it's greater than 90%, close to 100% in most of these markets already in SOFR. So it's really been an excellent story. I'm very, very pleased about where we are. Um, and the final piece was there's actually a sort of a tough legacy portion of um, in the U.S. LIBOR as well, where, again, there wasn't contractually a, a good fallback for, for when LIBOR didn't exist anymore. Um, but there's been federal legislation that we worked very hard on uh, advocating for that was passed, which essentially says, okay, even for these contracts, it's SOFR plus a credit spread that's mandated. And importantly, there's a safe harbor where if that rate is chosen, there's no litigation that could be uh, you know, imposed or, or, or attempted against um, you know, trustees and administrators. So LIBOR's in great shape. So even though 13 months to go, it's kind of winding down, and, and SOFR is really the predominant rate. It's a great story, I think, in terms of, of how the industry really pulled together uh, and, and, and worked on that. And, and we were glad to get Congress. It's not easy to get legislation passed, but we're glad to get Congress to do it. We've got about a minute left. I mean, I think what would be good is, is sort of thinking about where we are today, going back from March of 2020 and everything going remote, 90% remote. I, I know we were doing conference calls. So I think you were in every, talked to you in every backup site that J.P. Morgan had. Um, uh, you know, where are we today from where we've been? I mean, it's an incredible, it's a, a tragic story of the pandemic, but from how the industry operated. Yeah, I got to work in our backup site in Brooklyn and bike there every day. It was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, look, I think we've been through a lot of crises in our careers, but 
you know, nothing could have prepared us for, and we've seen all of us collectively, nothing like what we saw two years ago, because it wasn't only a market crisis, but it was a health crisis where none of us knew. Do you remember what we felt like back then? We didn't, you know, people were fearing for their lives, and it was just such a crazy, unique time. But I think, you know, I think of this as the ultimate stress test for our industry, quite frankly. And, you know, we passed it with flying colors. The market stayed open, right? We didn't shut down. We transitioned really quickly from in the office to remote work. And it's just really been um, a phenomenal story. And I think what you have to credit is all that advanced planning that we've done, um, the playbooks that we put in place, you know, the business continuity exercises that we all do. So important because um, it went, you know, not that there weren't bumps, but we never had to close and things really operated well. So um, all everyone here has really been responsible for that. That's great, that's great. Well, we're back, our time is up. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and for being at the conference. Thank you, thank you, Kevin.